Amen. Glad you're here this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you've got a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words for you on the screen. My heart's a little bit heavy. I, I put this uh, series together, and we don't always preach about topics. We generally preach through Scripture, but... I put this series together because I think it's of crucial importance, and yet I'm concerned that many people will see a series on judgment, being judged, and judging as kind of soft stuff. It's definitely more on the emotional side. It's sort of self-helpy, especially what we're talking about today, which is the way in which you judge yourself. So I feel... Um, a need to defend why this is important in the hopes that you'll put a little bit more emphasis on it or that you'll put emphasis on it for the right reasons. When Jesus is leading his people, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he tells them, this then is how you should pray. And the first thing he prays, our Father who is in heaven, so there's an identity thing, there's a connection there, there's a way in which we connect, there's all kinds of gold. But the first petition is, Hallowed be your name. Now, when I say that phrase, it's a disconnect because that's the only time you ever hear the word hallowed. You hear it echoed a little bit in the word Halloween or All Hallows Eve or something like that. But the, the idea is glorify your name, lift high your name, make other people see the value of your name, make the power of your name thrill. And a way that I can connect with that idea uh, is through cars. So uh, this past weekend, Rachel and I were in Park City, and we were driving up in. Once you get in kind of the Park City world, if you like cars, you got to keep your eyes open because people up there, you know, are doing okay. And they've got nicer vehicles. And I was behind a Porsche. And a Porsche is always an exciting thing to be kind of near. But a cooler Porsche, a, a crazy Porsche, a stripped-out, sportier Porsche is even more exciting. And we were behind a car that was a Porsche with several, several letters. So it wasn't just a 911. It was like stripped out, sportied up, and made all that much more. And it had this two-foot gigantic spoiler, and it was electric blue. Oh, I was so excited. We were right behind it at a stoplight. And that's like as close as I'm going to get, right, to driving the car, is being in my Ford behind that uh, Porsche. But the light goes green, and off they go, and they're being responsible. They just went very quickly to, like, 45 miles an hour. But they did go very quickly to 45 miles an hour. They gunned it, and you got to feel it, just that, that power of that engine, the echo, the kind of reverberation. It was very exciting. And, of course, my sweet bride was like, well, who paints a car that way? Why would you, <laughs> why would you pick that color? Like, this is a Porsche! Nobody gets a Porsche and paints it khaki. Like, you, you have this thing that's exciting, and it's so wonderful that you want people to see it. And maybe, yeah, some people are doing that because they want you to see them. But the way I feel about it, and the way that I hope the person that was driving the vehicle felt about it was like, right, I'm driving this. This is so wonderful. How cool is this thing? Look with me. Ex feel excited with me about this crazy thing that I'm driving. And I felt it. I felt the thrill of it. I imagine myself in the experience of that thrill. 
of getting into the car, pressing on the brake, and then hitting that button, the little ignition button, because they probably don't have keys. They're really nice cars, right? You press the little button, and it hums to life. And the thrill of possibility, the thrill of that power. I don't know if you've ever felt that. But what we're talking about has much more to do with the thrill of being near tremendous power than it has anything to do with self-help. See, you are like a vehicle. In Christ, so, so somebody who becomes a Christian, who believes this stuff, has read it, thought it, um, encountered it, and has decided, I'm in, I believe this stuff. If you're in Christ, you're like the, one of those really high-end cars in the sense that you've been given access to an unbelievable engine. You're given access to a power that can drive. And if you're not excited about the sporty, you think about the big diesel. About the kind of motor that can pull. You've been given access to this power, and yet, many of us are cars that are up on blocks. We're not doing much, we're not going many places. That disconnect is a problem, and that disconnect is something that we see in 1 Corinthians. That disconnect is something that we have to understand, because we could be killing it. And this church in Corinth could have been killing it. They were in a, a, an incredibly strategic place geographically and commercially. They were in this isthmus, meaning that these people, when they wanted to have traffic from one part of the empire to the other, they were all coming through Corinth. So Corinth had an incredible opportunity to take the gospel and to show it up to the whole of the world. And yet, when we read First and Second Corinthians, we're finding in this church all of these problems. And by chapter 4, we're already past diagnosing and we're getting to the cure of some of these problems. And his answer, Paul, Holy Spirit's answer to some of these problems isn't just to try harder, but to dig a little deeper and understand the mechanical issue in the machine. First Corinthians 4, this is what it says, verse 1. This is how you should regard us. So Paul is talking to this church, and it's a church that has become divided as different groups claim to follow different prominent Christians. One group says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Cephas or Peter. Another group says, I follow Apollos. And the other one says, no, 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 Whoosh, I follow Christ. And they're probably saying that in a judgmental way because he doesn't commend that group. And Paul's saying, Apollos... Myself or Peter, this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required that of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted because it is the Lord who judges me. So don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his, co his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
What he's talking about is the way that we judge ourselves. And the fact that the way we judge ourselves is going to take apart our missional effectiveness. Here's something that makes me very anxious. It gets me moving. It's the very real knowledge that, in not too far a future, somebody could be going down 13 East on a Sunday and not see that flappy sign. And they could say to the person next to them, didn't there used to be a church here? And the other guy goes, I don't know. And they just keep moving. Now, what do I see as the main dangers to our church, our little Hope Church? It's not coronavirus. And it's not masks or limitations on how many people can meet. The biggest one that I see is like massive moral failure from your leaders. So please pray for us. But the other massive one that I see, and this was pointed out by another pastor in the valley, and I just think he's a really wise guy, is what we'll call mission drift. It's kind of a businessy term. What I mean is not keeping the main thing as the main thing. Here's where I think it comes from. There was a survey done. There's Barna and all these different groups that do a lot of surveys with churches. And they asked pastors, and they said, why does your church exist? And it's not just in the valley. This was a national kind of a thing. And they asked pastors, and they said, why does your church exist? And the overwhelming answer from pastors was, well, the Great Commission. By the Great Commission, I mean the end of Matthew, where Jesus says to his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That's not part of it, but it's a really sweet, beautiful piece. So you don't want to forget that part. But the idea is the church exists to make disciples and plant churches. That sounds like the mission statement of Hope Church, doesn't it? If you haven't been here before. That's the mission statement of Hope Church. To make disciples and plant churches. When you ask the pastors, that's what they said. However, when they ask the majority of Christians... So it's not people outside the church looking at the church. This is people inside the church who just aren't pastors. What is the main reason the church exists? And the overwhelming answer from people who are part of the church but not pastors of the church was for the spiritual health of my family. Now, do you see a distinction in those two answers? Now, you can make fun of pastors, and well, you should. Bring it on. I need to be humbled. But the pastors were right, and the people were not right. That, that identity of the church exists for the spiritual health of my family is a focus on not only self, it's a focus on comfort. It's expressing a need for security and for spiritual security. So it's expressing an insecurity and it's expressing this desire for the church to care for me. Is the church supposed to care for you? Absolutely. If you don't feel that desire, let me know. 
I definitely desire to lead you well. I know the other pastors at Hope Church desire to lead you well. But it's to lead you to that great commission, not just to lead you to the sort of navel-gazing. And part of the reason is that that love has to connect in action, in activity, out in the world. Why? That's the whole machine. If you are a car and God has put in this massive engine, the problem now is a transmission problem. The transmission is the part of the engine that takes the power from the engine and brings it down to the wheels so that you actually are able to go and go with a lot of speed. Our problem, I think, the missional drift problem that many of us have is getting that love from the engine where God has given us this incredible description of his love, this incredible incredible picture of his love, getting that understanding of that love down into our hearts so that it actually changes us and we move. That's our big problem. And it's not love in a self-help way that just makes you feel better. It's the kind of love that leads to those terrific acts of strength and heroism that we see all throughout history in Laud. It's the love that has a mother lift something like a Hulk or She-Hulk because she loves her child. It's the love that motivates these armies to go and to take that hill and to put their lives in danger, not because of just some strategic advantage. It's because they love their home. They love their country and they love the guy next to them. It's the kind of love that makes you get excited about getting into the mess of a friend's life and walking with them through it. Because I'm just like you, when somebody else is having a hard time, a big problem, and it's a messy problem, I want to go all the way over here. Hey, I got drama. I don't need yours. I got messes. I don't need to get dirty from you. But no, love steps into somebody else's life and begins to take that pain upon themselves. How do you have that kind of love? It's not going to happen if your whole idea at Hope Church is make me comfortable. Make my spiritual health better in the sense that I feel better. I'm great with trying to make you spiritually healthy. I'm great with making you feel joyful. But it's for the purpose of that mission. His glory. If not, then... Your willingness to sacrifice is tied to the amount of pleasure or the amount of comfort that you're feeling. If that's the case, you'll never do anything because anything that you do is going to automatically be difficult and painful. There's no way to get you to go and martyr yourself for something when the whole reason you're there in the first place is just to feel better, to feel comforted. You'll understand as we go on that the love of God is going to lead you to that kind of sacrifice and that kind of love. But simply this desire to be comfortable, it's never going to lead you to sacrifice. How could it? Chesterton, who's a guy I really like, he said this, Nero could not hire 100 Christians to be eaten by lions at a shilling an hour, for men are not going to be martyred for monetary gain. How could you? Boy, it'd be dumb for you to come and sacrifice your life at Hope Church if the whole reason that you come to Hope Church is to feel better. 
oh, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something deeper. If I can actually connect you to the love of God, then that love is going to motivate that kind of mission as love. Not as just feel better at the end of a Sunday. This is what Paul sees. This is what Holy Spirit is showing us in 1 Corinthians 4 as the main or a main issue behind the issue. If division in the church is the issue, and we got division... If division in the church is the issue, then just deal with division in the church. But that's not the real issue, and he's going deeper, and he's saying, actually, the real issue has more to do with the way you see yourself before God or the way you judge yourself before God. He says we should regard us, servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. So he says job description, performance review. Steward, it's required of stewards to be found faithful. And yet his next verse is not. And woe is me for the incredible tension and frustration and anxiety of being the apostle to the Gentiles. Wow, is it not anxiety producing and crushing even to carry this incredible weight? It's required for me to be found faithful and I'm going to be a steward of the mysteries of God, really? Instead, he says, yet I'm not judged by you or any human court. And that's where culturally we say, yes, Paul, don't be judged by other people. You do you. You decide what is best for you. And yet Paul pushes forward and he shows the unique beauty of the Christian gospel. Because it's not just anything goes. He says, I don't even judge myself. And that sentence changes everything because now... It's no longer me deciding when and where I'm right and when and where I'm wrong. It's giving up. Just like we say you can't judge others, it's God's job. We're also going to say you can't judge yourself. That's God's job. Here's the transmission break. You are looking for a fig leaf. In the beginning of the scriptures, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They do the one thing they're not supposed to do. They didn't have Ten Commandments and hundreds of things around those Ten Commandments. They had one job. They had one rule. And they broke that one rule. And when they did break that one rule and sin against God, God comes to find them and they're hiding and they've made for themselves garments of fig leaves. And the whole point of the fig leaf is not modesty. The whole point of the fig leaf is shame. Now, of course, a fig leaf is a ridiculous thing. It's not hiding your sin. It's not hiding who you are. Certainly not from the eyes of God. But we're all seeking a way to hide that shame. We're seeking it because we feel inside of us this tension. I need love, and yet I've done something that's going to separate me from that love. And because we feel that pull, because we feel that gap, because we feel that tension, we seek to find ways to address it. And that's where you get the brokenness that leads to this division in the church in Corinth and all these other sins as well. But I think we can see them in a couple of different ways that, that all start with a C. Four different ways that all start with a C that have been identified by a biblical counselor, this guy named Pete Kuyper wrote a great book called Crossroads. I want you to read it. If, you're, if you say you actually read it, I'll give you one of my copies of it. And if you really like it and it's doing something for you, you can buy your own and give me mine back. If you'll actually read it, I'll, I'll do that. 
But he says that when you feel that tension, that break between the love of God and your need for it, and your shame, and you're realizing that you're separated from that love, you jump in there and you try and fix it. And you try and fix it in a couple of different ways. One is correctness. You become the perfectionist. You insist that everything around you be right, or at least held up to an extremely high standard. And if you have to be around people that are like that, if you have to work for or with people that are like that, it is a pain. Why? Because the whole point is not that things be done well. The whole point is that things be done so right that they can justify their existence. This desire to be correct says, I'm going to be right, and being right is going to be the best way for me to feel right. Now that's silly, but it's what we do. It was silly to sew together fig leaves and think that God would be stymied. But it's what we do. It's what shame leads us to. It also can lead us to comparison, this envy or jealousy at seeing your life versus other people's lives. I'm sure there are legitimate things that social media does. But this is one of the big ones that I think it does in an illegitimate way. I think it's one of the big things that hurts people. Because you go to the social media site, whatever it is, and you're scrolling through or you're clicking through or whatever, and you're looking at person after person after story after story after thing after thing. And again, it can connect you to something lovely. It can remind you of people that are far away or whatever. But mostly I think what it does, or what it does in a sinful heart, like mine, is it inspires this jealousy or this, this desire to compare. Because I don't know if I'm right or not before God. I need to at least be better than you. So if I can post something and the whole world is impressed by it, then all those little thumbs up are somehow going to maybe outweigh the giant, like, frowny emoji that I'm feeling from God. Once upon a time on Facebook, everything was just thumbs up or thumbs down. It's this very binary way of seeing the world. And you could just do the math. I'm like, well, 30 people were okay with it, but 10 people were not okay with it. So, you know. Now we have all of human existence can be condensed into these six little emojis. <laughs> Here's the possible reactions to the thing that you've done. And while people around you may give you little hearts, you still feel God's displeasure on you. So you criticize. If I need to be better than you, I'm going to find something that I can use to tell myself I'm better than you. The human brain is an amazing tool that God's given you. It's able to achieve the, the objectives you give it. And if your heart says that I need to feel better, meaning I need to feel better than the people around me, your brain is going to start coming up with reasons for you to feel that way. You're going to get really critical. You can say, I'm right before God because you're not, or at least I'm not as wrong as you are. And again, you're not feeling love. You're just feeling a critical spirit towards the people around you, which can lead to is, is maybe at the same time as this desire to control. Oh, you can be around somebody who's really controlling, who feels like they need to have their hands on every lever and every decision. When you feel that way personally, why is it that you're so controlling? I think you want to feel safe. And part of how you're going to feel safe is you're going to get in there and do the work necessary to make sure that you're safe, to take care of things. But ultimately, you're trying to say that you're right because you say so. 
these answers, these ways in which we try to make ourselves right, can't work. And Paul says you should stop doing them. He says he doesn't. He says I don't even judge myself. I'm not even going to engage in that hamster wheel of trying to make myself feel right. Because I do have a judge. It's just not me. Verse 4, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. I'm not innocent because it's the Lord who judges me. So, listen, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who's going to bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendations from God. Our culture says you can be right by simply moving the goalposts. Do you feel wrong? Do you feel shame? Well, tell yourself that whatever that rule is that you're breaking is not really a rule and that now this is the rule. What they mean by that is football. When a football kicker goes up to kick, he's got to get it through the uprights. If he does, they win. If he doesn't, you lose. If you ever watch football, you've had that moment where a whole game comes down to that final kick. There's only so many seconds left, and the other team is trying to ice the kicker with timeouts, and the tension is building and building and building, and you have all the sweat and blood of all these men who have been doing all this, and then the kicker comes out, and his jersey is clean because he's not done anything all game. And yet, the whole thing rests on his tiny little shoulders. And he goes back to kick, and his arms do that little thing where they wave, and then he goes up to kick. And imagine it's going left. It's not going to go in. And all of a sudden, maybe it's cowboys or something, they've installed these uprights that can move. And so it's going left, it's going left, and all of a sudden the uprights go whoop, and it goes through, and they win. Would that count? Would that feel satisfying? How childish. Of course you didn't win the game. You lost the game. You didn't even win. You just cheated, and you didn't even cheat, like, impressively. You just cheated right out there on the surface for everybody to see. How stupid. But we do it all the time. We just try and move the goalposts and say, okay, well, maybe I'm right because I'm just going to say that right means what I am. On whose authority? God is our judge. He does give us his pronouncement on us. What's hidden in darkness is going to be brought into the light. He knows the purposes of your heart, and he sees you. The fig leaf's not going to work. He sees you. Now, what does that do to you? Knowing that you're seen by God like that, what does that do to you? I, I hope that it gives you a, just a second of fear. All the things you did to try and hide who you really are are gone. They're out of the way. And he really sees you and me. What's so lovely about Scripture, though, the, the whole, the, the combustion in this engine, this V12 that's going to make your world run like crazy is that seeing you like that, he loves you. He knows you. He knows the whole thing. He knows the whole problem. He knows the whole depth of your sickness. And seeing you as you really are, he still loves you. You sang it just a second ago. I don't know if you meant it or not. 
I get it. You can show up, the words are on the screen, everybody's singing, you just kind of sing along. I don't know. But the thing you were pronouncing was omniscient, all-knowing. He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. My sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. There's a part of you that wants to hide your sin or reduce your sin or, well, it wasn't that bad. But when you do that, understand that you're actually making his love smaller too. Here's how that math works. However big my sin is, he loved me even more. So I, I don't know how big my sin is before God. I don't really know. I know that I've broken things the Bible says are rules. I know that I haven't loved him like I'm supposed to. I know that he says that there's this big gaping hole called hell that I'm supposed to go to. And I do feel bad for a lot of it. But, but however big, however bad that is, if I let it get bigger and see it the way that he sees it, I'm instead of going to be crushed by that sin, instead of just being demolished by it, I'm going to find a love that's even greater. A love that loves me even more. Revelation, uh, Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We will scarcely die for a righteous person, though maybe for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're a Christian, you go, oh, I've heard it before. I know that. Does your life ring with it? Is your whole world electrified by it? Is the tremble of the power of that glory thrilling you all the way from your fingernails, all the way up to your hair, to down to your toenails? Is it changing anything in you? It should. It should. That kind of love should change you. That kind of love that looks at you and says, however harshly you're judging yourself right now, I see it and I judge you more harshly. And yet, I love you even more passionately. That's the whole idea of Christianity. The whole idea of Christianity is that God saw our sin and loved us so much that he sent his son to die for that sin. Meaning, his son took that sin on himself, meaning that God said the only way to clean this stain is a perfectly innocent one has to die in their place. Jesus being that one. If you put those cards on the table, if you say, here's the situation, what could possibly motivate God to go through with the sacrifice of his own son for people like you and me? It's a love that we can't understand. It's a love that we don't let ourselves understand. See, it says in verse 6, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you can learn by us not to go beyond what's written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. My identity is based on who God says that I am, and I have applied those things in my heart and in my mind so that I actually live life like I believe those things are true. 
There's such a thing as a rational belief and then a functional belief. Meaning, here's what I say is true, but here's what my life proves that I really think is true. I say that I'm forgiven and God loves me, but I don't ever talk to him or think about him because that love is not something that I've really applied in my life. Somebody says, I love God, and I I, I want to help them see that their life is going to show us whether or not that's true. The things that they do are not going to earn God's love, but if they know God's love, it's going to change them. Your actions are going to show what you really do believe to be true. Rational and functional. It's all the difference between watching a YouTube video on how to ride a bicycle and going out and actually learning to ride a bicycle. The YouTube video will communicate all the information you need to know about how the gears move in sequence and how the, the pedals work and how you steer and how theoretically you balance and how it's a little easier to balance if you're moving forward. But until you actually get on the bike and ride, you don't know. And yet, if you'll actually get on the bike and ride, as the saying goes, you'll never forget. The point is to actually experience this love of God, to actually come before him and say, here's my shame. Here's what I've done. Everything in me tells me to hide this from you as well as I can. But knowing that's impossible, I'm actually going to show it to you and ask you to deal with it. Now, I know you hate me, right? And then you find passages like this in Scripture. Isaiah 49. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. He sees my sin. How could he love me? And God doesn't respond with an if-then. Well, if you work a little harder, maybe I'll start loving you again. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. There's babies all over this place. First service, there were babies like coming off the ceiling. I don't know how there were so many babies. The babies that these women have and that they have to nurse every two or three hours, do, you, do they forget those babies? Do they have no compassion? Of course, they have, all they think about are those babies. And yet God says, even these may forget Yet I will not forget you. And how does he prove it? I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now he's talking about the people of Israel like a city, like Zion. So he says, your walls, your person, who you are, the security of who you are is continually before me. It's something I care about all the time. I have engraved it on my palms. Now, Isaiah 49 is written hundreds of years before the time of Christ, but like many of the other prophecies about how Christ would die, Isaiah was right on point. Can I not tell you that Jesus has engraved on his palms you because he loves you. Your sins are many, but his mercy is more. If you can get that, if you can understand that, then all of a sudden the transmission clicks into place and that mighty engine is able to start moving you forward. You start to have a little growth. You start to have a little movement. You start to have a little bit of love for other people. And then all of a sudden, the existence, the future of Hope Church is not so in danger. Or if it is in danger, at least it's in danger even though the people of Hope Church are doing exactly what they're called to go and do. 
it's possible that right now the breezes of heaven can blow through your life. That's what heaven is. Heaven is perfectly being united to God forever. It's possible that flashes of that emotion, flashes of that security will blow through your life right now as you experience and believe and trust in that love. Don't you want that? Don't you want smells from that kitchen to come wafting through your life? Don't you want the music from that party to come faintly echoing through your life? This is the promise. This is what he's putting forward to you. Don't you want it? Oh, if we'll accept it, if we'll do it, then we can stop. We can stop with judging. We can stop with taking things apart. We can stop with the pride that puts ourselves over everything in the universe and instead submits to God in Christ saying, Lord, you forgive me. I receive your love. And then actually lives that way. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray right now. Lord God and Heavenly Father, would you please give us clarity to believe and accept these things as true? So much depth here. There's so much to apply. There's so much work that's going to have to be done to take the, the things that are true about your love for us and work them into the details of our thought patterns to apply them so that we actually do stop judging even ourselves, stop being critical even of ourselves, and instead work with a blind fury to see other people know you and to enjoy your love so that other people can enjoy that same love. Father, please fix our transmission. Let us understand that love and feel it and really know it so that we can go forward and your name be glorified. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.